Salutations, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Dr. Jazz Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Holloway, your doctor for jazz, and we hope to cure whatever it is that ails you through the power and majesty of jazz music. In this episode, we continue our special series on the maverick composer John Zorn. It's a special series that has many parts to it because there are many sides to this wonderful composer. And in this episode, our focus is going to be John Zorn and the occult. The occult. That's right. We're going to be talking about the different areas in which the occult has actually influenced John Zorn's music. And we're going to be discussing some of that and how some of that ties together. And just listening to a couple of the songs uh, and compositions that Zorn wrote that have, some of them are obvious, some of them are not so obvious. So, either way, this is a perfect timing for Halloween. And... We are going to um, hopefully give you something to think about. So, let's get started with music. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out the website, drjazzpodcast.wordpress.com. And let's get to it.
That was Rituals Part 3 from Zorn's album, Rituals. And a little backstory about this. It was actually, um, he uses like owls and he uses wind machines and actual grave digging and uh, some ritual magic, M-A-G-I-C-K. And uh, it featured a mezzo-soprano and ten instruments. It was actually composed for the 1998 Beirut Opera Festival. And much like Stravinsky with The Rite of Spring, uh, there was a little bit of a, of a scene when he premiered this at the Beirut Opera Festival. Um, it says that the uh, audience was split down the middle with half of them uh, stomping out and they whistled and jeered and the other half were cheering supporters. And I think that's um, very indicative of Zorn and his music. I think either you love it or you hate it. So, I guess for those who's listening, and myself included, we love it. So, um, there are five movements to rituals. Movements one, two, three, four, and five. And... One can't help but start to make some connections between five movements and a pentagram having five points to the star. So, this kind of sets up what we're talking about in this episode uh, of the podcast, focusing on John Zorn. This particular part of the Zorn series is focusing on Zorn and the occult. And um, it's fascinating. It really is. The things that you can draw from and some of the instruments that he uses, some of the combinations that he uses. He has uh, a mezzo-soprano and then ten instruments. So that's basically five times two. So maybe one for the current world and one for the netherworld. So we shall see. Up next is the second movement from Goetia, or Goetia, and um, what's interesting about Goetia is that 
it's known uh, as a practice that conjures or includes the conjuration of demons, specifically one summoned by the biblical figure King Solomon. If you'll remember, King Solomon was the wisest man. So, uh, there is a 17th century grimoire called the Lesser Key of Solomon, and this features an Ars Goetia as its first section. And it de- and in this Ars Goetia, it has a description of calling out or the evocation of 72 demons. Now, this was edited in 1904 by Aleister Crowley. If those of you who aren't familiar with Aleister Crowley, he uh, has had a lot of dealings with the world of Satanism. And so, Aleister Crowley edited... Uh, this Ars Goetia in 1904 as the book of the Goetia of the Sol- of Solomon the King. So um, it's used to invoke aerial spirits, and you can um, you can kind of read into that, but the actual term um, Goetia from ancient Greek. Uh, means charm or jugglery or sorcery. So it's associated with wizards and sorcerers. And um, it's kind of like this mythical race, if you will. <laughs> um, it's very interesting, you know, because we're talking about uh, there's a sordid history, and I'm not going to give you all the history, but in the Renaissance, Goetia was sometimes contrasted with uh, black magic versus white magic. And so white magic is light, it's selfless, it's to help. Whereas black magic is uh, it's drawn with selfishness, darkness. And you can think of it as light magic and dark magic black magic, white magic, low magic, high magic. So, it's very interesting. So, let that marinate on your mind and your ears as you listen to Zorn's Goetia Part 2.
Goetia, the second movement, from John Zorn's album From Silence to Sorcery. And again, we're dealing with the occult. Now, the description of this album is as follows. This album contains three distinctive instrumental works touching upon themes of magic and mysticism. Goetia are spells and incantations for summoning demonic spirits, and this colorful set of variations for solo violin draws upon the ancient alliance between the violin and the devil. So, there you have it. Everything is representative of something more, something else, something bigger. And in Goetia Part 2, he uses all of these movements for solo violin because the violin is and always has been connected to Satan or the devil. So, interesting. Very interesting. Um, once again, if you'd like to check out more of these movements, please, by all means, support the artist. Support John Zorn. And purchase these either through Zodic.com, that's T Z A D I K.com, uh, the Downtown Music Gallery on the Lower East Side in New York. Uh, shout out to Bruce and Manny there. Or you could always just order them on Amazon and have them delivered to you. So, either way, not that Zodic doesn't or that Downtown Music Gallery doesn't, but um, even if you go on Amazon, try to look for the DT. M uh, Gallery Seller. That's actually the Downtown Music Gallery. They do have an Amazon handle. So, please support the artist if you like what you hear and if you want to support more of it. Up next, The Black Mirror.
That is The Black Mirror from John Zorn's album Valentine's Day, which features three generations of downtown music stars from New York. That's Mark Rebo on the guitar, Trevor Dunn on the bass, and Tyshawn Sori on the drums. Now, exactly what is a black mirror and what kind of connotations does that have to the occult? Okay. When it comes to using and empowering um, a black mirror, um, you can use this to scry, S-C-R-Y. And scrying is a useful means to contact demons and spirits to foretell the future and uh, basically to get answers to questions. And a black mirror is an object that is ideal for contacting these demons and spirits. Uh, it says, traditionally, obsidian was the material of choice in the making of black mirrors. But, you know, they can be made out of other materials. They say that the cycle of the full moon is the best time to create a black mirror. The moon rules the third eye and the psyche. Any frame for a photograph can actually serve as the base for a black mirror. And what you do is you take a glass from the picture frame and paint one side of it with black enamel. And, you, of course, you know, in order to get it completely black, you need to, several coats of paint. Um, and, I mean, so basically you have this, you know, this black mirror once it dries. So you put it back into the picture frame and it's a black mirror. Um, some substitutions for black mirror uh, are also a dark bowl of black liquid or a shiny black object large enough to basically focus on because what we're trying to talk about is creating something that will rule your third eye or your psyche. Now, black crystal balls are also available for those who want to use black mirrors. And, um, basically, it's an empowering ritual. Let's put it that way. And, um, these things are not to be taken lightly. These things are, are real things out there, you know. Um, and the more advanced and the more expertise you have in these kind of ritual, ritualistic things, um, you can use. So, basically, you're trying to um, summon either Satan or, um, you know, things like that in order to, with your third eye and your psyche, uh, to basically empower yourself, get some answers to questions that you may not know. And, it, I mean, it, it's a deep thing. You know, I don't want to go into it too deep, but it is, you know very full of witchcraft, if you will. So the fact that Zorn is using titles like Black Mirror with these musicians, there are certain things, you know, that 
go along. So, rather than just read titles like, oh, Black Mirror, cool, you know, it's like that show on Netflix or what, no, 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 no. This is much deeper than that. Zorn is a very methodical composer. He takes his time and everything has a reason and a rationale. There is a method to the madness. Put it that way. Um, so yeah, so we've gotten Rituals, uh, Goetia, which has a connection to the violin and, and, and the devil. And now we have Black Mirror, which has another relation through the occult to Satan. So up next, we have two movements from Zorn Suite Necronomicon, which is also known as the Book of the Dead. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Here's Conjurations, followed by Asmodeus. <laughs> Thank you. 
Necronomicon Movement 1, Conjurations, followed by Necronomicon Movement 5, Asmodeus, by John Zorn off of his album Magic, M-A-G-I-C-K, and it is performed, it is a string quartet that is actually performed by the Crowley Quartet. No doubt, named for Aleister Crowley. Now, John Brackett describes Necronomicon as saying, Zorn's Necronomicon for String Quartet, written in 2003, takes its name from the evil, yet entirely fictional, book created by H.P. Lovecraft, one of the most prolific writers of science fiction and horror in 20th century American literature. Lovecraft incorporated the Necronomicon into a number of his short stories and novellas, beginning with The Hound in 1923 and continuing with the case of Charles Dexter Ward, The Dunwich Horror, At the Mountains of Madness, those of you Masada fans, 
and many others. Lovecraft's book developed over the course of its fictional existence, beginning life as a vaguely ancient mystical text, becoming a book closely resembling a medieval renaissance grimoire. And finally, a book about an ancient alien race that had inhabited the earth at one time at the Mountains of Madness. So, there you have it. Now, um, it all this and the aura of authenticity basically led H.P. Lovecraft to write a history of the Necronomicon in 1927. Now, what Zorn's attempting to do, according to Brackett, with Necronomicon is Zorn is attempting to evoke the dark aura surrounding Lovecraft's fictitious tome. And to this end, a handful of recurring numbers are used to structure and organize various aspects of the works. More specifically, the numbers 13, 666, and 15, along with presumably others. Uh, and these numbers can be found throughout the score and are used because of their symbolic meanings within certain occult traditions. It should be pointed out, however, that Zorn does not appear to be interested in forging any sort of authentic relationship with Lovecraft, as none of these numbers, to my knowledge, play a significant role in any of Lovecraft's writings devoted to the Necronomicon. Instead, bracket states, Zorn appears to be transplanting certain occult number symbolisms from other traditions, most notably Kabbalah and the thought of Aleister Crowley. Traditions examined in more detail in other parts and other sections of Zorn's IAO album. So, the there is something that he goes on to talk about, such as formal beauty of this five-movement work. And, of course, now we're into the second instance of a five-movement work. We talked about Rituals being a five-movement work. And now we're talking about the Necronomicon being a five-movement work, which is no doubt inspired by the pentagram. So, the first movement is Conjurations. The second movement is uh, the Magus. The third movement is Thought Forms. The fourth movement is... Incunabula, excuse me, and the fifth movement is Asmodeus. So you can go one to five, or you can go two to four, or you can go three to five based on some of these figures and drawings. So, and there is definitely uh, some numeric symbolism going on in and throughout this entire. Move, well, this entire work, all these works that are inspired by the occult. So, for instance, in movement three of this piece, um, there is 15 different 
quarter notes. And this is specific to as an this is a specific occult reference as the appearance of Asmodeus. So there you go. And the number 13 has a dual association uh, as both unlucky and in Kabbalistic thought symbolizing unity or love. And 666 is the number of the beast in Revelations 13:18 and Alistair Crowley's chosen number. So what does all this mean? Well, what this all basically means is that there is intentionality and there is thought behind everything Zorn does, including writing a five-movement work for rituals that's basically tied to the occult and Satanism or whatever. And there's also intentionality when he put the Goetia movements for solo violin to associate that with Satan. And there is also intentionality with the Necronomicon having five movements. Even though it was taken, maybe the idea was taken from a fictional work by Lovecraft, but the way he uses the numbers symbolically, this is intentional. The five movements are intentional. And there's more to come. So, let's get to another piece. Here is Friday the 13th. Speaking of symbolic numbers and so on and so forth, here is Friday the 13th. Rot, 
That is Friday the 13th from John Zorn's album The Last Judgment, which features the Moonchild group with John Modeski's organ added to it. This is um, a second album that's actually inspired by the legend of the powerful Knights Templar, and their tragic demise under the accusations of heresy in 1307. For this album, Zorn composed uh, a, a bunch of pieces uh, with a this kind of almost sense of continuity, like it just keeps going from one to the next. And Mike Patton, of course, is on vocals, and he draws through various vocal techniques and it's just absolutely mesmerizing. So you have John Medeski on the organ, Mike Patton on the vocals, Trevor Dunn on the bass, and Joey Barron on drums. And this is actually from the last album from the Moonchild group. So just another fascinating work um, evoking all of these kind of sinister kind of sounds, these mysterious sounds, these very secretive kind of sounds. Um, Of course, you know, the Knights Templar has various things, mysteries, and veils that surround that group. And we're going to get into that a little bit after this next piece. We're going to feature another piece from Zorn's Moonchild group, And this is the evocation of Baphomet. (laughs) 
The Evocation of Baphomet by John Zorn's Moonchild Group off of their album, Moonchild. So the same group just sang or performed The Evocation of Baphomet following Friday the 13th. Two separate pieces, two separate albums, but the same kind of group. How in the world does Friday the 13th, The Devil... Baphomet and the Knights Templar all come together. Well, if you take the time to look some of this stuff up, it's fascinating. And I know I've said that a bunch already, but it's really fascinating because actually, when the medieval order of the Knights Templar was suppressed by King Philip the 4th of France on Friday, October 13th, 1307. Philip had many French Templars simultaneously arrested and then tortured into confessions. Over 100 different charges had been leveled against the Knights Templar. Most of them were dubious as they were the same charges that were leveled against the Cathars and many of King Philip's enemies. He had kidnapped earlier Pope Boniface VIII and charged him with near-identical offenses of heresy, spitting and urinating on the cross, and sodomy. And Malcolm Barber observes that historians quote-unquote find it difficult to accept that an affair of such enormity rests upon total fabrication. But the Chinon parchment suggests that the Templars did indeed spit on the cross. And that these acts were intended to simulate the kind of humiliation and torture that a crusader might be subjected to if captured by the Saracens, where they were taught how to commit apostasy, quote-unquote, with the mind only and not with the heart. And Michael Haig suggests that the simulated worship of Baphomet did indeed form part of a Templar initiation ritual. And the name Baphomet comes up several times in these confessions of the Knights Templar. Um, The author Peter Partner states in a book, The Knights Templar and Their Myth, from 1987, that, quote, In the trial of the Templars, one of their main charges was their supposed worship of a heathen idol head known as Baphomet. And Baphomet is supposed to be symbolically equal to Mahomet. The description of the object changed from confession to confession. Some Templars denied any knowledge of it, but others, while under torture described it as being either a severed head, a cat, or a head with three faces. The Templars did possess several silver gilt heads of reliquaries, including one Mart Capud, another said to be Saint Euphemia, and possibly the actual head of Hugh de Payens. 
The claims of an idol named Baphomet were unique to the Inquisition of the Knights Templar. And Karen Rawls, another author, argued that it is significant that no specific evidence of Baphomet appears in either the Templar rule or in other medieval period Templar documents. But modern scholars uh, seem to agree that the name Baphomet was an old French corruption of the name Muhammad, with the interpretation being that some of the Knights Templar, through their long military occupation, had begun incorporating Islamic ideas into their belief system, and that this was seen and documented at, by the Inquisitors as heresy. So, were they actually worshipping Baphomet, which is another name for Satan? Or were they worshipping Muhammad and having these Islamic ideals into their their thought processes and their rituals? It's a mystery. But that at least answers how Friday the 13th, the Knights Templar, and Baphomet all come together. And this shroud of mystery, this not being able to nail down the concrete, is what helps inform Zorn. And it's just enough of that element of the occult with Baphomet to inspire such works, which are fascinating. And another work, another album completely, is E-I-O, which looks like the letters I, A, and O, was a complete album of interesting ideals as well. So let's get to some more music. This is Lucifer Rising from the E-I-O album by John Zorn.
That was Lucifer Rising from John Zorn's album E-A-O. And the description of the album goes on to say that the name E-A-O is Kabbalistically identical to the beast and his number, 666. And in the tradition of Zorn's long-form studio compositions such as Godard, Spillane, Elegy, Kristallnacht, and Duras, it is completely unique in form and content, but E.A.O. is a hypnotic seven-movement suite of alchemy, mysticism, metaphysics, and magic, both black and white, high and low magic. It is inspired in part by the esoteric works of Aleister Crowley and his magical disciple, filmmaker Kenneth Anger. The seven movement suite range from hypnotic exotica, ritualistic percussion, and death metal to ambient electronica and a stunning piece for female chorus. What you just heard. Now, going deeper and further. Mr. Brackett says that released in May 2002, EIO is Zorn's first large-scale project that unequivocally reflects his interest in the occult. So there's proof right there. Esoteric knowledge and mystical philosophy. According to the description, it is a hypnotic seven-movement suite of alchemy, mysticism, metaphysics, and magic, both black and white, and is inspired by the writings and thoughts of Aleister Crowley and Kenneth Onger. And the Kabbalistic, identi- is the Kabbalistic number is identical to the beast, 666. And while it's complex, they say... Bracket goes on to say that the formula for EIO was for Aleister Crowley, and this is both in theory and practice. EIO represents the transformation into a new eon, that of Horus, whereby the I in EIO is Isis, which is nature. Ah is for Apophis, the destroyer, and O is for Osiris, which is to be restored to life. So, in practice, Crowley writes, the magician who employs the ritual of Iao is conscious of himself as a man liable to suffering and anxious to transcend that state by becoming one with God. In addition to the thought of Crowley, Zorn's EIO is also inspired by Kenneth Onger. So, a bunch of this stuff is complex, and you can find out more about it by looking deeper into the writings of Aleister Crowley as well as the films of Kenneth Onger. But the full title of the actual album is 
E-R-O, music in sacred light. So what does that mean? Well, the subtitle is a clear reference to Kenneth Onger's understanding of the role of light in his films. Kenneth Onger has described how he is, quote-unquote, an artist working in light, and that's my whole interest, really. Onger relates the concept of light to the occult beliefs, and his films emphasize the connection between light and Lucifer. And name is understood as being etymologically derived from lux. For anger, for Anger, Kenneth Anger, Lucifer is the light god and not the devil. A representation he describes as Christian slander. Lucifer, as the light god or Venus, the morning star, is Kenneth Anger's holy guardian angel, with whom he wishes to communicate through his films, or the rebel angel. And some people go on to say that Lucifer, being the fallen angel, is actually because he was trying to give information to the human race. And that information is light. So... There is some validity there among historians and scholars. So, now John Zorn, as a composer, has this to say about music and magic. That's M-A-G-I-C-K. He says, quote, I take magical weapons, such as pen, ink, and paper. I write incantations which is compositions. And in the magical language, which is music, I initiate rituals, which are recordings and performances. He goes on to say, I call forth spirits, which are musicians, engineers, printers, CD sellers, and so forth. And the composition and distribution of these CDs is thus an act of magic. M-A-G-I-C-K magic. So, if that isn't coordinating enough with the occult, it goes even further. Brackett in his book talks about how there are specified timings on the album E-I-O. And there are seven tracks. Invocation, Sex Magic, Sacred Rites of the Left-Hand Path, The Clavicle of Solomon, Lucifer Rising, Leviathan, and Mysteries. And the silence in between the first and the second track is 13 seconds. Now, we already talked about how 13 is an important Kabbalistic number, 15 is an important Kabbalistic number, and 666 is an important Kabbalistic number. So, the silence in between the first and the second track is 13 seconds. The silence in between the second and the third track is 13 seconds. And the length of the track, by the way, the the second track, Sex Magic, is 13 minutes 
and 13 seconds. Now, the length of the first track is 7 minutes and 6 seconds, but how does that break down? Well, if you look at it as 6 minutes and 66 seconds, that's 666. Now here's where it gets even more interesting. This is where the numbers invert. So the silence between the second and the third track is 6 seconds. The silence between the third and the fourth track is 6 seconds. The silence between the fourth and the fifth track, you've got it, 6 seconds. So in the middle, you've got 666 as the number of silences in between the tracks. And then it changes dramatically. The silence between the fifth and the sixth track back to 13 seconds. So, is this coincidence? I think not. I think Zorn is so intentional that you cannot mistake this for happenstance. So, Deep stuff. Deep, deep, deep stuff. Well, next we're going to continue on with Zorn's fascination with the occult and the devil himself. Here is from Zorn's album Madrigals, The Devil's Walk.
right, that was The Devil's Walk from John Zorn's album Madrigals for uh, vocals. And what an amazing job those guys did. Um, Just fantastic music, fantastic writing. But once again, even in his madrigal compositions, the devil seems to creep in. So it almost seems like the occult is always rearing its ugly head in one way or another, or its fascinating head, whichever way you want to look at it. So, up next, Valperg is knocked. And this is a multi-movement piece, but we're going to listen to the second movement of Valperg is knocked. And basically what this breaks down to is this is um, Walpurga's Night. And it is it breaks down from Germanic folklore. Um, Walpurga's Nacht is also called Hexennacht. And it literally translates to the Witch's Night. And is believed to be a night of a witch's meeting on the Brocken, or the highest peak in the Harz Mountains. And this range of wooded hills in central Germany, between the Elbe River and the Weser River, and this, uh, the first known written occurrence of the Walpurgisnacht is from the 19th century. And local variants of uh, the Walpurgis Night are observed throughout Europe in the Netherlands, Germany, the Czech Republic, Slovenia, Sweden, Lithuania, Latvia, Finland, and Estonia. But in Denmark, the tradition with bonfires to fence off the witches is going back to the Brocken is observed as St. John's Eve and is... Uh, a midsummer celebration with the witches. So we're talking about a wide landscape. This is not from like one small village in in Europe, you know, in Germany. This is a a very wide geographical thing, phenomenon. And a little backstory on on Walpurgisnacht or Hexennacht is um, most countries celebrate it. And it's named after the English missionary St. Valperga. And it's generally held on April 30th or May 1st every year. And um, <laughs> in the 17th century German Germany, it is a German tradition of the meeting of sorcerers and witches on May Day Eve. And Hexennacht, or Walpurgisnacht, is influenced by the descriptions of the witches' sabbaths in the 15th and 16th century literature. So, once again, here is the occult in witches being informed through Zorn's music. So, it's really fascinating when you piece all these different parts of the puzzle together. I mean, we're not talking about just one thing. We're talking about a variety 
of things within the occult that is inspired, influenced, whatever you want to call it, John Zorn's music. So, without further ado, here is the second movement from Walpurgisnacht, or if you're in Germany, Hexennacht.
That was Walpurgisnacht, the second movement of Walpurgisnacht from John Zorn's album Mysterium. Well, next we're going to move on to something very strange. We've heard of the significance of 666 being the number of the beast and being associated with Aleister Crowley, but what does 777 mean? The only thing we're given in the title is 777. Nothing is true. Everything is permitted. We'll talk about it after we listen. Enjoy. Seven seven seven. Nothing is true. Everything is permitted. It was scored for three celli. And if you think about it, a cello has four strings. You have three cellos. Three celli. That's twelve. There are twelve signs of the zodiac. Twelve months. So and it was off of his album What Thou Wilt. So, very, very, very interesting stuff. But it still begs the question, what does 777 mean? We know what 666 means. And where does 777 even come from? Well... The number 777 is actually a book by Aleister Crowley. So here we go with our Crowleyana again. The meaning of 777. According to Aleister Crowley, probably had several meanings. But uh, in his book on page 61 you will see that, uh, or if you if you rent it from the library, if you buy it, um, the Weiser edition uh, of 777 and other Kabbalistic writings of Aleister Crowley, um, it says, regarding the number 777, quote, the flaming sword 
if the path from Bina to Chesed be taken as three. For Gimel, three, connects Arik Anpin with Zair Anpin. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Kabbalah, um, here's an explanation. The Tree of Life is a graphic symbol composed of 10 circles and 22 pathways. It represents the shape of a tree, which is one of the reasons it's called the Tree of Life. Um, but the 10 circles, or spheres, are known as the Sephiroth of the Kabbalah. 10 successive stages of emanation in the transition from the highest deity to the manifest world. The tree is a kind of map of creation, if you will. Now, Kabbalists, or Kabbalists, um, believe that it's possible for spir spiritual beings to descend the tree, and for human beings to ascend the tree, at least through meditation. Now, the primary path is of descent is known as the way of lightning and is sometimes called the flaming sword that Crowley was talking about. It is called the way of lightning because it darts back and forth down the tree in a zigzag kind of pattern like the the common you know representation of a lightning bolt so think about like a Z keeping on going down. Now uh, it's also called the flaming sword because during the act of creation the word of God became flesh. And this word is often depicted as a sword extending from God's mouth. Now, the word made its way from the highest sephira, kether, to the lowest, malkuth. So, the path is the same whether it's called by either title. So, it's two titles, two names, exact same path. Now, each of the 22 paths... Um, that connects the Sephiroth or the spheres has in the Golden Dawn D-A-W-N Golden Dawn system of magic a specific Hebrew letter and each Hebrew letter has its own numeric number value now when the numbers of the Hebrew letters of the pathways traced by the flaming sword are added together, they get 777. That's 777. Provided that the gap between the third sphere, known as Bina, and the fourth sphere, known as Chesed, is assumed to be equal to 3. That would be Gimel. That's what we described just a second ago. Now, this has got to be done this way, since there is no path on the the, the tree that connects Bina with Chesed. But this is one leg of the Way of Lightning or one leg of the Flaming Sword. So, it gets complicated. That's the, the basic, 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 even just as confusing as that may seem. That's the basic version. So, but it goes on and there's tons to this Gematria, you know. Um, there's an essay called Gematria, you know, that you can look at that helps. Um, but there's, like, Aleph is one, you know, 
uh, Gamal is three, you know, Noon is 50 through path 24, through path 30. Uh, Resh is a value of 200 uh, through path 32. The letter Tau is a value of 400, and so on and so on and so on. So basically, if you go down the path of the, the flaming sword or the tree of life, you get 400 plus 200 plus 80 plus 50 plus 30 plus 9 plus 3 plus 4 plus 1. And that equals 777. So it's truly Aleister Crowley's take on God and the Kabbalah. So, now that's what's interesting when you pair it with the subtitle of the piece, which is, Nothing is true. Everything is permitted. So, there you have it. <sighs> Just fascinating, ingenious stuff here. So, up next, from the album True Discoveries of Witches and Demons, here's Simulacrum with Dark Sacrifice.
right. That was Dark Sacrifice from John Zorn's group Simulacrum with their second release, The True Discoveries of Witches and Demons. And the lineup is Trevor Dunn on the bass, John Medeski on the organ, Mark Rebo on the guitar, Matt Hollenberg on guitar as well, and Kenny Grahowski on the drums. So, what in the world, what kind of dark sacrifice could Zorn be talking about? <clears throat> well, according to Alistair Crowley, again, this could be another edition of Crowleyana, because according to the teachings of Crowley, there is a demon called Bartzabel, and Bartzabel is a demon that embodies the spirit of Mars. Now, Crowley has claimed to have summoned and summoned and spoken to Bartzabel in 1910. He said that Bartzabel told him that there would soon be major wars starting in Turkey and Germany and that the wars would mean the destruction of life and nations on an epic scale. Well, what came about right after 1910 through Turkey and Germany? The Great War, World War I, and World War II. Hmm. So, even though he... Uh, only conveniently remember this conversation in 1914, he still wrote up, Crowley did, this ritual for summoning Bartzabel. And he detailed the Pentagon and the circle, what demons' names to include, the drawing of the sigil of Bartzabel, the proper wardrobe, you know, all, how to set up its altar, and all this other stuff. But the ritual itself was an incredibly long set of appeals and actions involving lines like, quote, May the names of God that gird us be our sign that he hath heard us. And then you walk around the altar while carrying these certain weapons. And the first part of this ritual uh, involved a, a consecration of the area. The second part was preparing the materials, and the third part was the invocation of the spirit Bartzabel himself. Part four detailed the format for the interactions with Bartzabel, and Aleister Crowley even recorded just what went on in his face-to-face -face question and answer session with Bartzabel. Uh, Bartzabel was then given license to depart, but in 2013... Almost a hundred years later, uh, an L.A.-based performance artist, Brian Butler, performed the ritual in front of thousands of people, uh, which is actually the largest group to have ever bared witness to one of Aleister Crowley's rites. And a blindfolded and bound man acted as the receptacle for the spirit of Bartzabel. According to Butler and the witnesses, the whole thing went off without a hitch. Hmm. So, could this man be a dark sacrifice? Could peace on earth be the dark sacrifice? Either way, it's still involved with Aleister Crowley and the occult.
So. Hmm. Well, we have one last one for you. A 13th track, if you will. And for Halloween, it's All Hallows' Eve, The Witch's Sabbath. Enjoy.
All right. That is All Hallows Eve, The Witch's Sabbath, Lauds, like Lauds, Vespers, Matins. And um, that is from John Zorn's album On the Torment of Saints, The Casting of Spells. And the description for this album is three pieces of magic and religious mysticism performed by a new generation of musical masters. This is a companion piece to Walpurgisnacht, which we heard earlier. All Hallows' Eve is a tour de force in three movements for string trio, a satanic counterpoint for the witches' Sabbath. So, now let us talk about the concept of the witches' Sabbath. This type of gathering is uh, consistent with all freaky things on All Hallows' Eve. It's also a concept that appears in art. So, um, there's a betrayal by Goya of the witches' Sabbath. And there's dark humor with it as well. Um, there's witches at incantations um, by Rosam. But the, sa- the witches' Sabbath is a rendezvous that generally happens at night and in the depths of a forest or some other remote location. Now, according to the superstitions that date back to the Middle Ages, witches could transport themselves to the Sabbath by stripping naked and rubbing their bodies with grease or the, uh, the fat of babies that would cause them to levitate. And once they're airborne, they're generally mounted on a broomstick or a goat, which was really a demon disguised as a goat. These witches could fly to the witches' Sabbath where they would engage in various rituals of magic, sexual orgies, with each other or with demons, wild dancing, worshiping, and sacrifices to the devil. And of course, cannibalistic feasting on children. So, um, there were also many types of conjuring going on uh, in the forms of spells in order to manipulate uh, whether to exert sexual power over men or others. So, that's the witch's Sabbath. <laughs> Ah, so, hopefully you've gained a wider interest and a wider scope of our man John Zorn and a totally different side to his compositions. Now, for one last part out of Bracken's, Bracken, Bracket, John Brackett's book, Zorn, about Zorn, he talks about since the late 1990s, themes of magic and mysticism have been pervasive in John Zorn's music. From his work Rituals in 1998, he embodies alchemical, alchemical or hermetic designs that are used as a way of organizing and presenting musical as well as extra musical ideas. But 2002 could be considered the beginning of Zorn's intense interest in mystical composition. 
During this year alone, 2002, Zorn published or released a number of compositions and recording projects that are, in some manner and to varying degrees, dependent on aspects of the occult philosophy. These albums are, and these pieces are, E.A.O., which we've taken a listen to on this podcast, Goetia, and Sortilage, all in 2002. This trend continued with Necronomicon, Hermeticum Sacrum, and Walpurgisnacht in 2004. And given the aggressive, dark, provocative images associated with Zorn's earlier musical practice, a a continued interest in matters described typically as evil or dangerous might characterize our immediate reaction to his recent occult-inspired compositions. Zorn's occult-inspired compositions operate within the precarious yet necessary balance of conceptual oppositions derived from and associated with a variety of occult traditions. So, one of many, 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 many sides to this wonderful composer. And no better time than this right here, Halloween, to present this side of Zorn, the influence of the occult. I thank you for listening. We'll be back with more different sides on our special series on John Zorn. But until then, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, y'all be good now, and in Zorn we trust, we trust.